Cast Ball Show. Brought to you by JohnPLE.com. What the f you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f- put that in. I don't. So the tribe drops its third straight on this trip, six to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. I'm talking about the past, I'm talking about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. I would say I wouldn't know, but I would say the reason why they want to pass is baseball going into the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball and from the baseball angle. I'm not going to speak of any other sport. Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember, it's not a lie. Sell the team. Oh, yeah. Welcome aboard. John Pielli, Pass Ball Show, MTR Radio Network. Just a reminder, tweet at me at John underscore Pielli. Of course, that'll uh, allow us to keep the discussion interactive right here. Very good program planned today. A couple guests that we're going to get into in a little bit. Of course, we're going to do Bases Empty Blog. Um, a whole series I've been doing about the expansion draft. And I'm going to kind of gradually move my way backwards from 1998 to 93 to 77 to the initial expansion draft that happened in 1961. So I do want to take some time to get into that. But, of course, a lot of stuff going on with the hot stove baseball and, you know, a lot of moves going within the last couple days or so. Of course, the Yankees going out there, kind of making a surprise, signing Jacoby Ellsbury. And, you know, you look at Ellsbury with the Yankees and you don't think that it's necessarily that bad of a fit. Here's a guy who plays a very good defensive center field. He has the ability to hit for a little bit of power, kind of does it all. And the issue really with this is how much money the Yankees ended up giving him. Seven years, $153 million. And if you really looked at the competition, this may be a situation where the only criticism you could say is the Yankees were competing against themselves. And, you know, the Boston Red Sox, who probably weren't willing to go much more than 60 or maybe 70 million tops, and what other team would really go out there and maybe outbid the Yankees at $153 million? And, you know, we talk about the number six org all the time. The Seattle Mariners, a team that seems to just go out there and try to make a splash in any way they can offensively. And obviously a lot of the moves they made over the last several years have not worked out. they got a very good young pitching staff, and you know they're going to be in for a marquee free agent to try to bring in a type of player that could kind of add some excitement to their offense to balance their pitching a little bit. But could you even imagine the Seattle Mariners, you know, offering anywhere near that much for Jacoby Ellsbury and his services? That's the only criticism I knocked the Yankees for. Hey, great move. They went out there. They got a very good player. They got a guy who's going to be their center fielder for the next several years. And, you know, another marquee player that could get added to the, the offense with some of the guys they got leaving. And especially guys like Derek Jeter getting a little bit older. You never know what's going to happen with A-Rod. Maybe he plays next year. Maybe he doesn't. But if he doesn't, obviously you need to make up for the offense somewhere. So 
you know, the Ellsbury move in itself, I don't have a problem with it. You know, the Yankees are the Yankees. They could spend what they want to spend. But what did they do in regards to, you know, competing against themselves? That's the only issue that I have there. Could the Yankees have gotten Ellsbury for $100 million or maybe even $120 million? Maybe less than $100 million. I think we all agreed that Jacoby Ellsbury was the type of player that probably could have gotten a $100 million contract, but he essentially gets a deal pretty similar to what the Red Sox ended up paying Carl Crawford a couple years ago. And honestly, if I was going to take the player at the time, Crawford coming off the year that he came off of in Tampa Bay and Ellsbury coming off of the year that he came off of with the Boston Red Sox, I would probably choose to pay Crawford that money as opposed to Jacoby Ellsbury. But listen, the Yankees, you know, with Brian McCann, with Ellsbury, you know they're going to address some needs with the pitching. They signed Kelly Johnson as a guy who could play second base and maybe help out in the outfield, even if Robinson Cano was brought back. So you know the Yankees are aggressive. Obviously, with the Boston Red Sox winning the World Series, the onus is on them to upgrade them te- their team to not only be a contender next year, but a team that could compete for the World Series and try to bring another championship back to New York to add to the 27 that they already have. But... A lot, a lot of activity within this week. And, you know, you see with the Red Sox going out there signing A.J. Przinsky, um, I think their choice was to pay a guy on a one-year deal with a couple of the catching prospects that they have in the organization. And Przinsky ends up pretty much fitting the build of the type of guy that they want. You know he's a good clubhouse presence. He's been known to be a very good signal caller and game handler behind the plate. So you look at uh, A.J. Przinsky being kind of ideal for the Boston Red Sox. I like that signing. Uh, you know, looking, you know, what Brian McCann ends up getting. Salta Lamacchia, the catcher, ends up signing with Miami to go to the Marlins for a three-year, $30 million contract. People were kind of criticizing that move, saying the Marlins go from being a team that, you know, essentially undressed its payroll last year to get themselves in a position where they could bring a bunch of young players in. But with that, they have some payroll flexibility. They have the ability to spend some money if they need to. So I like this move, bringing themselves in a catcher, a guy who could hit a little bit, a guy that may be criticized a little bit for not being the best guy defensively behind the plate, but certainly makes the Marlins a little better. And I think that was pretty much the the message that was sent out, not only with the Marlins, but with every team that went out there and made themselves a move this past week. And you look at the offseason, and you've seen a number of teams, not just the top not just the teams that we know are going to go out there and be legitimate contenders and World Series uh, possibilities, but teams like the Houston Astros, they go out there and they make a trade with the Colorado Rockies, which I thought was a very good trade, getting outfielder Dexter Fowler, and they give up Jordan Lyles, a package that doesn't seem to be a lot from you know what they've built and the young players that they've obviously brought through the system. Jordan Lyles is a good young pitcher, hasn't really shown very much at the major league level, but has the ability to get better. And I think the Rockies can value that. But at the same time, you look at a lot of the young players in the Houston Astro organization, and to get Dexter Fowler for what they did, I think, was a steal. And Dexter Fowler, listen, maybe over time may not be the most excited guy playing for the Houston Astros, where they sit in the American League West. You know, doesn't look like they're going to get themselves in a position to win this year. But a lot of young players are going to start coming up. They're going to have a very good core of young players that, especially if these guys come up and become what you expect them to become, like a Carlos Correa, Lance McCullers Jr., Jonathan Singleton, you know, just to name a few. If a lot of these younger players can start to become what the Astros and Major League Baseball thinks they could possibly be, 
then I think this team will get themselves in a position where they could contend in maybe two or three years, but not in 2014. But Dexter Fowler is a good player, a guy that can hit a little bit for some power, some speed, plays a very good defensive center field. And listen, a lot of teams could have used Dexter Fowler. The Mets could have used Dexter Fowler. Uh, other teams out there, potentially the St. Louis Cardinals, may have had some interest in Dexter Fowler. The Seattle Mariners, the Oakland Athletics. And I'm going to get into the Athletics, of course, for a second, because they were very active this past week, making a series of trades, which you know started before that by the signing of left-hand pitcher Scott Casimir to a two-year contract. And I think that was their decision that they were probably going to move on from Bartolo Colon. I think ideally they would have liked to bring Colon back for a one-year deal and probably pay him pretty decently. But at the same time, I think there's doubts over whether Cologne could duplicate what he did in 2013. He was good in 2012 with the A's. He was great in 2013 for certain parts of the season. So you look at Cologne at age 40. You don't know if he's going to be able to be the same pitcher that he was this past year. And Cologne obviously wants to go out there and get himself a two-year deal. And I think he has earned it over the last couple of years. And looking at the market of Major League Baseball, the way it's set up with pitching and starting pitching, having such a value, I think Bartolo Cologne will get himself a two-year contract with, with a certain team. What, you know, whether, you know, whether it's a team maybe near the end that needs some starting pitching depth and uh, you know, kind of just says, listen, we're going to go for it. We're going to bring Cologne in. If he could have a very good 2014 season, then the 2015 season won't be so bad. You know, the A's with Moneyball, the whole thing, they don't want to make that investment in two years in Bartolo Cologne. And I think from their perspective, they realized that it was prob- they were better off, better suited, going with a guy like Scott Casimir, who had a breakout season in 2013, a guy who looked like he was done you know, after his time with the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, he came out there and had an excellent season for the Cleveland Indians. And I think, you know, a, certainly a guy that's much younger than Cologne and a guy that certainly seems like he has something left. He, he showed you not only that he could pitch at the major league level again, but he showed you that he could pitch somewhat near what he was when he was a top prospect with the New York Mets and traded to the Tampa Bay Rays for Victor Zambrano. Um, the A's made a good move there. And they made some very good moves. They addressed their bullpen. I think it was pretty understood that Grant Balfour wasn't going to be coming back as their closer. Um, he's going to get himself a three-year contract probably with another organization, a team that's looking for a closer. And the A's say, listen, you know, we, we don't want to invest that much money in years in a closer. We would rather kind of get somebody that we could have more in the short term. And that's when they turned to the Baltimore Orioles and made the trade for Jim Johnson. Jim Johnson, of course, the 51 saves a couple of years ago wasn't as good last year. But the, the A's know that they could control him you know, for a limited amount of time as opposed to having to pay him an excessive amount of money over a number of years. And they went out there and addressed the setup, man. They went out there, they traded Seth Smith to the San Diego Padres and got themselves Luke Gregerson. And Gregerson's been one of the top eighth inning relievers in Major League Baseball. Was, of course, part of the bullpen in San Diego that had Heath Bell closing with Mike Adams as a setup man and Gregerson pitching the seventh inning. And Gregerson's been a very good eighth inning guy for the San Diego Padres. You bring him over to Oakland, he's staying in the same state of California. And certainly that bullpen with Ryan Cook and some of the lefties that they have over there looks very good going forward. They went out there, they got themselves Craig Gentry to play center field. It's an interesting move. I don't know if Gentry necessarily starts. You think about Reddick and Cespedes 
and you know the way they have things set up there with Coco Crisp, Gentry may not be an everyday player, but if they have an injury or they decide to make a move, trading a Cespedes or even a Josh Reddick, then Gentry is a guy that they could probably put in there as their everyday center fielder and give it a shot. And the Oakland Athletics have been very active, and you got to like what Billy Bean has done down there. Obviously, the last couple seasons have worked in their favor. They've won themselves a couple AL West titles. They've gotten themselves in a position where they are considered a favorite to make a run towards the pennant in the American League. I still think the Moneyball philosophy is not going to win itself a World Series, and I'll be proved wrong the day that Billy Bean with the Oakland Athletics or Andrew Friedman and the Tampa Bay Rays go out there and win themselves a World Series. Can it get you to the playoffs? Sure. And a lot of teams like the philosophy, but the question remains, is this enough to win itself a World Series? And maybe there's going to be a Moneyball team out there. Maybe it's not the Athletics or the Tampa Bay Rays. Maybe it's another team that within itself quietly has kind of done that type of baseball in regards to making those low-risk, high-reward moves and not investing themselves in big-time contracts and not paying their top players the amount of money that they need once they get close to free agency. Maybe there's a team under the radar that ends up doing it. But once a Moneyball team goes out there and wins itself a World Series, I'll change my approach. I won't be as aggressive in saying that it doesn't work in regards to winning a World Series. But what Billy Bean has done this past week and this offseason so far puts him in a good position. He's made some very uh, interesting moves and very good moves to help his team going forward. Obviously, there's still a couple needs that need to be addressed, but you know, I'm anxious to see how this ends up turning out as you know, we, we end up going into uh, to 2014 season. Doug Fister gets traded from the Tigers to the Washington Nationals. I certainly like the move from the Nationals' end. They get themselves a sinker ball pitcher to go with Stroudsburg and Gonzalez and Jordan Zimmerman and, of course, uh, Ross Detweiler. So they're, they're certainly upgraded a rotation. I question a little bit. From the Detroit Tigers end, I don't know if they were in a situation where they really felt like they needed to go out there and drop some money, maybe reallocate the funds. Dave Dombrowski, I think, felt like the team needed to make some changes this year. Obviously, the Prince Fielder trade to Texas was certainly unexpected, and they got themselves Ian Kinsler back. And, you know, you know they have some money. They're going to extend Max Scherzer, the Cy Young winner in the American League, and and keep him long term. You, you got to like what you see from Detroit because they're they're in a the position where they have a ton of talent. They're certainly a now team. Jimmy Leland not there anymore. Brad Ausmus inherits a team that certainly can go out there and win itself an AL pennant. And they, they could have done it last year. I just think Boston was a little bit better. But I, I think Dave Dombrowski's thinking about it. They're think, he's thinking about what the Boston Red Sox did and maybe not trying to duplicate the philosophy and the same type of players, but trying to think what Boston had that they didn't. And obviously signing Joe Nathan addressed one of their big needs. Jimmy Leland was kind of the guy that pushed for the closer by committee. That's what he did in Pittsburgh. The one thing he was, he was never in favor of using the same guy for the ninth inning. And, uh, you know, you looked at the way it was set up with the Detroit Tigers. It certainly didn't work out last year. Joaquin Benoit did a good job towards the end of the season, established himself as the closer. But you saw where they had to go to get there, whether it was Phil Coke or Bruce Rondon or, you know, Jose Valverde, who ended up being brought back. Now, you know, they went through a lot of moves that didn't work out before they finally settled on Benoit. But having Nathan there coming off of one of the top seasons, let's be honest with you, you know, looking at a season that Joe Nathan had last year, that was certainly top 10 in regards to the top 
closer seasons of all time. And he ends up getting himself a two-year deal with the Detroit Tigers, and he's going to be the closer for the Tigers. So that's one less thing they have to worry about. Do they end up wanting to bring in another starting pitcher to back up Verlander and Annabelle Sanchez and Scherzer and Rick Porcello? It's a possibility. They may get themselves a, another pitcher. They may get themselves involved in the Shinsu Chu sweepstakes because there really hasn't been a distinguished frontrunner in regards to Chu where he ends up going in free agency. And on to an interesting move, which a lot of people aren't going to agree with me with my approach or my feeling about it. But the trade that the Tampa Bay Rays made to bring in Heath Bell from the Arizona Diamondbacks, I absolutely love the move. I think Bell going to Tampa Bay in a, in a type of situation where Tampa Bay is a small market team, is not going to grab a ton of attention. The ability to go there and play for Joe Madden and be part of his bullpen, where you know he's got a number of young arms in there, being the closer there, I think Bell will succeed. The only question is, how much does Heath Bell have left? You know about the season that he had in 2012 with the Miami Marlins. He pitched better last year in Arizona under Kevin Towers, who of course was his GM in San Diego. So that's interesting to look at there. Does Heath Bell have anything left? And there's been a lot of naysayers. There's been a lot of doubters in regards to what Heath Bell can bring to a team, especially as a closer. Of course, Arizona was set up with J.J. Putz. And, of course, Bell was there as a setup man. David Hernandez was there as a setup man. It turned out to not be a very good year in general for the Arizona Diamondbacks bullpen. Brad Ziegler ends up emerging as the closer and probably will be the closer coming in in the 2014 season. So Bell was expendable. He's got one year left on a three-year deal. He signed with Miami. And interesting enough, a three-year deal for $27 million where he ends up pitching for a different team each year which I think is something you probably didn't anticipate. You probably would have expected the Miami Marlins over time to have traded him, but to trade him after the first year and him getting traded from Arizona to Tampa Bay after the second year is something very interesting. But mark my words, I think Bell's going to go out there and have a good year. Is it going to be Fernando Rodney of two years ago pitching to the sub-1 ERA? I don't think so, but I think he's going to reemerge himself. He's going to go out there and can pitch somewhere between a 2.5 and a 3 ERA and get himself 40 saves for the Tampa Bay Rays and probably get himself another contract after that. So I think that was a very good move, an interesting one to look at in regards to the trades that were made this past week. And certainly you got to look at the Mets. And if you listen to me on MTR Radio, if you check me out on Twitter at John underscore Pielli, I'm kind of at my wits end in regards to what the Mets plan is this offseason. I've sat there in my bed and I've laid down and I've dreamed of different scenarios. Maybe the Mets swinging a a miraculous trade with the Milwaukee Brewers to get Gene Segura, the shortstop. Maybe trading Daniel Murphy and Ike Davis, Ruben Tejada in a deal that brings Segura back. And maybe one of the caveats of the trade, maybe one of the things that the Mets are going to have to accept is a, a guy who's declining in Ricky Weeks. And I would do that deal in a heartbeat, obviously. Trading Murphy and Davis and Tejada to pick up a guy like Segura or maybe Carlos Gomez or something like that and taking Ricky Weeks as part of the uh, deal breaker and looking at it from the Brewers perspective obviously they want a first baseman they would certainly be a team that's interested in bringing a guy like Ike Davis over with the hopes that he could resurrect his career and be a 30 home run guy and 
Tejada obviously is not Segura. Segura over Tejada in a, you know, is in a landslide. There's no question about it. I'm not saying that Ruben Tejada will ever be a player that's anywhere close to being what Gene Segura is right now. And obviously the Brewers went out there and they got him in a trade for Zach Greinke with the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. But looking at it like this, maybe they say Tejada can play shortstop and be the everyday shortstop and expect a little bit of a drop-off for a guy like Segura who almost led the National League in stolen bases, obviously has emerged as a guy that could go out there and get 200 hits. But, you know, Daniel Murphy to go there and play second base and solidify a guy, 188 hits for the Mets last year, to bring in, you know, Davis and Murphy and take Tejada back could be a deal that could work out for both teams. So, listen, let me get off my cloud, let me get off my fantasy world and into the reality of the New York Mets and where they sit and where they are right now. There's talk that they may be willing to go out there and offer a fourth year to get Curtis Granderson over from the Bronx, which is something that I think the Mets just have to ante up and do. But if you're a Mets fan and if you followed Sandy Alderson, over the last several years, and you saw what happened with Michael Bourne last year, you understand that there is a distinct possibility that he could play hardball and end up losing Granderson to another team that might simply go out there and offer that fourth year. And that's where I have a problem. If he, if you go out there and you don't make this type of deal, do you think that Nelson Cruz is going to simply take your three-year deal? And the problem is, is if it comes down to that extra year, if you're Sandy Alderson, you just have to pucker up and take it. You have to take a chance on somebody. You've heard me say from you know from here till whenever that the Mets have to go out there and address their offense in some sort of way. If they make a trade, they're going to have to probably trade a player or two that you may not want to see the Mets give up. And if they're going to sign a free agent, you're probably going to have to see them pay a little bit more in regards to years or dollars. And, you know, you can't play a little financial planner banking guy in regards to saying that you're going to get everybody on, a, you know, a 10 cents on a dollar. And if you want Curtis Granderson, you're going to have to give him the four-year contract that he's looking for. And listen, you may, you may realize in the end it might take five years to get him. I mean, if Seattle decides that maybe they don't want Robinson Cano as much as they think and they offer Curtis Granderson five years, would that be a surprise? The Boston Red Sox have all of a sudden jumped into it, maybe as a reactionary type of move to the Yankees signing Jacoby Ellsbury and all of a sudden are a little bit interested in Curtis Granderson. The Red Sox, from their perspective, don't want to go any more than three years. And honestly, if you look at it, it makes more sense for the Mets to go four years than the Red Sox. So the way this is set up, the Mets have to strike at this time and get themselves a guy to kind of build their team off of. They get themselves Curtis Granderson, and then you could start thinking about trades or maybe another free agent, but at least Curtis Granderson is brought in here, a guy who certainly plays good defense in the outfield, can hit for some power, is going to hit, hit some doubles, is going to give David Wright some protection in the lineup. And listen, if Curtis Granderson ends up going elsewhere, then I think you got to start to worry about the way things are set up with Sandy Alderson and the Mets and whether they're going to be able to pull the trigger on any type of move. They're not going to be in it for Chu. You know they're not going to be in it for Cano. Nobody's asking them to be in it for either one of those two players. But if they can't get Granderson or if they're not willing to get Granderson, Nelson Cruz is going to be another guy that's going to be overpriced in their budget. They're not going to get they're not going to not sign Curtis Granderson to a 4-year contract and go out there and sign Nelson Cruz to a 4 or 5-year contract. 
So the options are going to dwindle, and you're going to start to wonder if spring training is going to come, and if you're in the New York Mets, if you're going to be looking at another rolled-over team, and David Wright answering questions about why he thought Sandy Alderson was going to go out there and address these needs, and what he thinks about him not addressing those needs. But once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. We're going to take our first break of this program. We'll be back finishing up this hour with a solid interview I recorded with Fred Valentine after this. Hey guys and gals, want to have a great time dining out while watching your favorite sport on HGTV? Then come on down to Hooters of Princeton, New Jersey, located on Route 1 South in Trenton in the Mercer Mall. Hi, I'm Deja. And I'm Corey. These are great deals all week, bound to whet your appetite and satisfy your hunger. Check out our Bunday Mondays, where you can have a delicious cheeseburger and fries for only $6.99. On Tuesdays, we have all-you-can-eat wings all day, just $12.99 per person or $10.99 for boneless. On Wednesdays, you can get 10 boneless wings and an order of fries for just $6.99. On Saturday, kids eat free for every meal ordered by an accompanying adult, and the meals are served on Frisbee. We have half-priced appetizers from 10 p.m. until close every day. You can then enjoy your cold draft beer with our mouth-watering crab clusters for only $5. Remember, we are located in Trenton on Route 1 South in the Mercer Mall, just south of Quaker Bridge Road. For any information, call us at 609-520-WINGS. That's 609-520-9464. So come on in and watch your favorite football team while having a great meal, served up by the nicest and the hottest girls anywhere. Hope to see you there. Hey, I'm Sean Big Daddy Lynch. I'm Joe DeLaSanti. And I'm Tim O'Brien. And And we're your favorite tailgaters. Listen to our show every Tuesday morning from 11 to 12 on NTR Radio. We'll tempt your palate with football, basketball, baseball, hockey, you name it, we got it. That's right, we do. We'll stir things up, voice what's grinding our gears, and just talk plain sports. We hold nothing back. Sports Talk Radio, are you ready for the tailgaters? Oh, yeah. Welcome back. John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Thank you for joining the program. Um, Next interview I'm going to play is with a guy who played for the Baltimore Orioles in 1959, 1963, and 1968. He also played for the Washington Senators from 1964 to 1967. Right now, he is the vice president and one of the founding members of the Major League Baseball Players Alumni Association. And you're going to hear him talk about that. And a, a very nice man, a guy who came up you know, in a time where there was still segregation when he was playing in the minor leagues. And he tells, you know, some very interesting stories. Hopefully you guys enjoy this spot with former Major League outfielder Fred Valentine. Good afternoon. This is John Pielli. I'm here with former Major League outfielder Fred Valentine. Fred, what's going on, man? Very good. Very good. Yeah, that's Fred. 
No, absolutely, man. Thanks for having a couple minutes. Um, you know, now you uh, you know, you had a you know a long path, you know, from you know where where you went to, going to high school, to college, and to the pros. Maybe maybe in your own summary, tell us a little bit about your experience going, you know, going through all the different levels and then getting to where you ended up getting to in the major leagues. Obviously, Fred, you're you're a very good athlete growing up, and you know you end up you know you end up going to college, you become you know a Division One you know college quarterback. You know, tell us a little bit about that. You know, your experience playing football, and you know you you know your passions. Obviously, you know you had the talent to play football as well. Uh, yeah, well, basically that was my second round with football, and because of my size, I didn't I wasn't able to really get on the team until my junior year. Because I was so small and at that time I got on as a quarterback. I was just a, you know, with a good arm, I could run and, and I 
Valentine. Now, you know, one thing that stands out, and I do want to get into, you know, you being up in the minor leagues and some of the things that you went through, but, uh, you know, being between baseball and football, and I think a certain part of you was probably torn between the two because you knew you had the ability to do both probably on a professional level. But, uh, you know, what a lot of people forget is that, you know, the NFL, uh, you know, back in a time that, you know, when, when you were younger, wasn't what it was today and probably didn't guarantee the money that it guarantees today. And baseball was, you know, leaps and bounds in regards to probably the the best opportunity. And I understand you were not dealing with a ton of money, you know, compared to nowadays, but probably was the better opportunity for you if you could play baseball as opposed to football, you know, you know from the way it is now, right? Question in reference to selecting the sport was, you know, I was, I, I thought my best part of football was as a quarterback. I played safety on defense. I could run and I was pretty good. But uh, I thought, you know, and I've always had good legs. I could run. And as you can see, most of the run of the quarterbacks doing, I was running. So I could go ball in college 70 yards without any problems at all. But when they came about asking me to, about the possibility of getting the football, 
You know, you ended up uh, choosing to go into baseball. Now, you know, we're talking about a tough time, like you had just mentioned. You know, the you know we're talking about you know still in some segregated areas and stuff like that, and you know having to go through the minor leagues, playing some of your ball down in the south and stuff. Um, you know, what what gave you the determination and strength, you know, within yourself to be able to get through all that all that negativity that was going on then? Again, John Piello, the former major league outfielder, Fred Valentine. Now, you know, I think the, the biggest point you could say, and I, and I think a lot of people maybe misconstrue it, that, you know, once Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in Major League Baseball, I think a lot of people assume that it was it was easier for, for the African-American ball player after that. But, you know, like stories like, you know, what, what you tell kind of just, you know, allow people to understand that it took, it still took a while before that African-American ball player was, was accepted and could kind of just be treated somewhere near or, you know, equal to that of the white ball player. Well, so it was all up into the early 60s that some places, the cities and the hotels were still segregated. 
It's sad to see, you know, how, you know, how, you know, you know, mean people can be at a time. And, you know, we talk about all the different, you know, all the different generations that go through and people that, you know, live nowadays probably, probably don't even get to see what it used to be. And I'll tell you, you know, a guy like you, you know, God bless you for being able to have the strength and determination to get through it. And of course, you know, you end up, you know, in the 60s getting probably the best chance to play in the big leagues with the Washington Senators, you know, from 64 to 67, 1966, you have a pretty good year. Yeah, you, know, you go out there, you kind of do a little everything, hit some home runs, steal some bases, uh, you know, stuff like that. Tell us a little bit about the 1966 season when you got a chance probably to, to, to play for the most part in your major league career with the Senators. Yeah, well, uh, I, was, I was fortunate to be able to play for Gil Hodges, the official rest of peace. And uh, he was the one that put me in to have me uh, – Traded from Baltimore to Washington, in, in uh, at the end of the season in '63, and I came over for Gil and I just was showing up for April in '64. All the thing was going to just give him 100 percent, and that was all he was asking of all his offers. I said I had no problem with doing that. '66 came around and showed up for the experience and the opportunities that I had. Uh, Things just was working for me quite well, and I could have had a much better year because most of the year I was hitting close to 300 or over 300. But knowing how Gil Hodges was, he was the type of person that you go out and play in any kind of condition if you felt you could help him as well as hit the club. And many days I went out and played, I was I shouldn't have been playing because physically. Uh, I just wasn't in a good position to play. But knowing the type of person he was, I told him, I said, if anything I can do to help this club, I'll do it. And forget about averages and this, that, and all that. But if you think that I can help the club, I'll play. And he appreciated it. And sure enough, we, uh, we ended up tied with Baltimore. They had a division set up. club went up to the point where we ended up by a record time with Baltimore, so he was on the move, and he did a great job as a manager, uh, you know, sharing the club, too. But uh, that was a big, big time point in my life in 1966 here with Washington, and it's one reason that after his plan, I just ended up staying in Washington because of the community, the people, and my involvement with the different organizations and the youth programs in the Washington area. So that was a turning point in my life there. Yeah, no question about it. Once again, John Pielli here with Fred Valentine. Now, uh, you know, you talk, you hear a lot of stories, and I've heard a lot of stories about, you know, Gil Hodges from other players, and they all kind of say the same thing. He kind of gave that impression that, you know, he would do anything for you and kind of made you as an athlete want, want to go out there and, you know, just give it your all for him. What, what, what do you think are the main characteristics that a manager has like that? Is, is, is that? is that the fact that he, you know, you know that he's there for you and he kind of, you know, listens to you, you know, if you, have, if you have problems and stuff like that or he just coaches you to a point where, like, you know he really cares? Well, that's the key thing, you know, 
unless you know him and play for him, you know that he's he's going to support you right away. The only thing he had asked you to do is give him 100% on the field. And he was, he, he supported you one of them. The club wasn't really a good, good ball club because in 64, I came over and the club was in last place. And uh, our theme for 1964 was off the floor in 64. And that was to get out of the basement that, during that year. And going through that year, he put up with all kinds of stuff. He's probably, you know, I don't know if many managers could have taken it. But he hung in there. And sure enough, in 66, he did so well. club did so well until that's when he left Washington and went to the, to the Mets. And he did so well there that he ended up going into the World Series. But Hodgson was the type of person. I still go to New York every year for our major league baseball alumni dinner and the other dinner that we had there in, in Long Island. And I, this year I've missed seeing his wife. His wife and son usually come to the dinner. And uh, we know each other and we revert back to those days and shut up. Yeah, no question about it. And certainly Gil Hodges is a guy that does belong in the Hall of Fame for both what he did as a player and a manager. And hopefully, you know, Major League Baseball kind of just acknowledges that soon. I mean, he's, he's a guy, in my opinion, that absolutely belongs in the Hall of Fame. Right. That's their opinion. Most of the people that I know that know about him think the same way. And we said maybe, who knows, after most of these reporters or whatever that about it now you know you end up with the Orioles in 1968 and of course that's an up and rising team as well but you know afterwards you end up going over to Japan and you play with the Hanshin Tigers in 1970 you know tell us a little bit about you know what was going through your mind at the time you know as far as the opportunity and you know about a little bit about your experience playing over in Japan well they had approached me before uh, it was my from the people from Japan, they're, they're always trying to recruit American ball players, and they had approached me and about four or five years earlier before I came to Washington. And naturally, I, I was going to stay in the big leagues, but when they, I, I was sent back to Rochester in 1969, and not knowing what was going to take place the next year, if I was going to go with another club or somebody was going to pick up, they made another offer for me to go to Japan. I thought it was a good opportunity, and I jumped on it, took the opportunity to go over there, not knowing really the situation in Japan in reference to the American ball players. And so it all worked out, and I left. In February, first of February, and came back after Thanksgiving because they have their own rules over there, which I found out once I got there. And the people over there were tremendous. They love baseball. And each club over there had two foreigners, called Kajim's two foreigners. But Willie Cutlin and myself was on, we put in Osaka on the Hansen 
position over to the construction of engineering company at that time. It was called uh, George Iron Division. Now it's called Clark Construction. And to head up a department. And I was 35 years old at that time. And I said, well, I've got a call and I've got an opportunity to spend more time with my family. And I sent them a telegram indicating that I was officially retired from baseball. And I would not be playing anymore. Naturally, they didn't like it. But uh, that's when I made the decision to retire from baseball. In 1970, yeah, now I tell you, after you know, afterwards you end up you know involving yourself with the, you know the ML the MLB uh, Players Alumni Association. Tell us a little bit about that, and you know what you've been doing all these years with that. Oh, we got that started 30 years ago, the Major League Baseball Alumni <laughs> Association, which uh, the, the idea and thought came up by Chuck Hinton, which was he's one of my teammates here in Washington. And uh, he realized that the other professional sports had associations that they would go and have meetings, they would go and have dinners, they would go and have function. But the baseball, as big as it was at that time, did not have an association. So she thought up the idea, maybe we should try to put together an association. So there were about five players from Baltimore, Brooks Robinson, Hanson, and uh and there's about five players from the Washington Senators I got together and started talking about it. And from one thing led to another. We had a hotel that gave us room to have our meetings and just do our discussions and put it all together. And so we started meeting. Met once a month, coming up with thoughts and ideas how we could go about doing it. And somehow or another, uh, we got a lawyer in the area that uh, was a baseball fan to come along with us. And he provided some free service to us for a long, long time. And uh, long story short, after getting all together, Johnny and a few of us went to the New York to talk to the Major League Baseball groups. And they supported the idea and decided that they would finance our group. And we got started, and 30 years later, we're well off one of the strongest associations in professional sports right now. And it's all due to the thoughts of Chuckett, which he just passed this past year. Now, I tell you, man, you know, you obviously, you know, went went through a lot, a lot of ups and downs, you know, getting through a major league career and, you know, starting the Alumni Association. Listen, Fred, I want to thank you for having some time. appreciate you giving me a couple minutes, and keep up the good work, man. Okay, well, thank you. Great spot there, Fred Valentine. Five-minute break coming up. We'll be back with a whole other hour. Pass ball show. Back after this.